0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This is Larry Lessig. This is another episode of Another Way. It's a different sort of episode, talking to a different sort of person, a friend I've known for more than 20 years when he first approached me before the birth or the real birth of Wikipedia and asked how could it be done. Um, I didn't have any ideas for him. All the ideas were his and his co-founders. But Jimmy Wales has been an inspiration for many, many years. And his decisions in the architecture of the business model of Wikipedia, I think, are among the most important social organization decisions Of our time. And so, in this episode, we're going to explore a little bit about what went into the design of Wikipedia that made it possible for it to operate as a platform understood to be neutral, as neutral as any platform could be, in covering stories and the news and information, and begin to think about how those same values might be extended beyond the context of an online encyclopedia. Jimmy, of course, has been deeply invested in thinking through other models of information and cultural exchange ever since and has had a number of very successful businesses that have grown and as well as experiments that have not succeeded. And so in this conversation, I think you'll see the contours of the solution um, and by the end, I at least was optimistic that we had a sense of what the right kind of solution would be. So stay tuned. So thanks for doing this, Jimmy. It's great to see you again. Um, yeah. Here's the puzzle We're in a context where, at least in the American media environment, Americans are led to radically different views of the same facts. We just had an election, 70% of Republicans believe that election was not free and fair. 75% of Trump voters believe that Trump won the election. Those beliefs are just, have no connection to reality. Um, And yet people act on them even violently as January 6th demonstrates. Um, as I've been struggling to understand how we should think about dealing with this problem, I I was drawn back to thinking about an innovation which you launched more than 20 years ago um, for producing information that wasn't captured by this polarizing norm. Um, and And I just wanted us to come back and remember a little bit about you know, what motivated these ideas to launch Wikipedia? And and what did you learn about how you could bring radically different people to talk about a subject in a way that tried to, as much as possible, neutralize these inherent well. polarizing tendencies? So l- let's just start with that, because I know you've thought a lot about this. I know you have started to think about your own I mean, you're building your own uh, social network to try to address some of this. But I just would love to bring back the founder of Wikipedia to talk about <laughs> how we as a community, as a public, can think about critical issues in a way that doesn't destroy us.
1: Mm. Well, it's, it's a huge topic. Uh, and as, as you said, it's one I've given a great deal of thought to um, over the years um, and Fortunately, in terms of making for a very interesting discussion, it's a multifaceted and very complex problem. Unfortunately, it also means I don't have any magic silver bullet uh, solutions to it. Um, and also, I have, in many ways, I, I feel a lack of understanding, really, of exactly what's going on right now, uh, in the sense that, you know, when when I see uh, numbers like, the ones you just quoted. And I try to reconcile that with understanding where people get information and what kind of information they're getting and so on and so forth. It, it There's no simple answer to it. In other words, people, uh, I mean, I, I believe that you, you have various uh, news sources that would be more popular on the right and various news sources would be more popular on the left. Um, and there's a lot to criticize about some of those more right-leaning sources, so Fox News and Newsmax and so on. But I also think if you, and, and I admit I haven't actually recently, I live in the UK now, so I haven't actually watched Fox News recently, but I suspect they aren't on there campaigning every day now that, that Trump won the election. They may have guests on who are more inclined to say such a thing, or they may report things in such a way that leaves... The viewer a little more open to doubt than they should be and so on and so forth. But it isn't as if there's a very simple answer of saying, well, Fox News is just lying to people and that's that. Um, and even if that were the simple answer, that, <laughs> that still leaves us with a very hard problem of what do we do about it or what does that mean exactly? Um, but so, I mean, I guess the the to go back to the the question of of Wikipedia and and how do we think about these issues and how do I think about them. I think it's really, uh, again, it's it's a complicated and multifaceted thing, but I think part of it is that the Wikipedia community has taken from the very beginning um, the stance that uh, neutrality is non-negotiable. I said that from day one of Wikipedia, I said neutral point of view is non-negotiable. And what I meant by that at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking about the problem of polarization in the media and in the public 20 years later. What I just meant was we, we shouldn't become, like, it's easy to imagine, uh, partly because it exists or has existed, uh, the, the, the Catholic encyclopedia. So an, an encyclopedia written by and endorsed by the Catholic Church, which, by the way, is, as far as I'm aware, having looked at it sort of casually over the years, Pretty high quality in, in many metrics, but would have perspectives that might not agree with sort of the mainstream view on certain particular issues. I mean, it's easy to imagine uh, that the Catholic Encyclopedia is going to take a certain uh, view of certain scientific facts and so on that are, are perhaps outside the mainstream of science, but done in a quality way. You know, they'll have proper, serious theologians who've written quality work and so on and so forth, but it's not intended to be, in their case, neutral. It's intended to put forward a serious, thoughtful Catholic view of the world. Uh, And I just thought, well, we shouldn't do that. And and there were two reasons why. One, I I don't believe that's what an encyclopedia should be. I accept that it could be, and that it's not a terrible thing if if there's a sort of progressive encyclopedia or a Catholic encyclopedia or, or what have you. But that I, I wanted a neutral encyclopedia. I want an encyclopedia that doesn't tell me what to think, but gives me all of the all of the sides that are sort of worth considering in a reasonable way, so that I can then come to a debate and make up my own mind. I can gather the information I need. So that was one reason. The other reason is that in order to have an open collaborative project um, where you get people together from different sides, it becomes very very difficult if you're not sort of committed to some ideal other than truth with a capital T, uh, which we may never agree upon. But the idea that, okay, we should we should chew on ideas and present them fairly and be neutral about which of several controversial points might actually be, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the correct one. Then it, it becomes possible for people of goodwill to work together. So there uh, was a fun uh, sort of thing. Well, fun for me. It wasn't fun for the people involved. Um, The the Los Angeles Times did a very short-lived experiment where they were using MediaWiki software, which is the software that runs Wikipedia, to, they were going to do sort of a a wiki editorial model. So they opened up the wiki using our software and they said uh, something, you know, it, it was a very basic kind of introductory topic like war in Iraq, good or bad. Um... And what happened very very quickly was you, you come to the idea that okay this is an opinion editorial there's it's really hard for people of good faith to work together on one document there um, you you can if you if you've got a certain kind of sort of editorial fortitude uh, if you wrote an editorial that I disagreed with or I wrote an editorial that you disagreed with we could say okay I'm gonna Edit this, but I'm not going to try to change your perspective. I'm just going to help with sentence structures, you know, some writerly things. But in terms of actually coming to a consensus editorial that we'd both agree with on a topic that we disagree with, it's not possible. And so, um, you know, it's, it's that sort of neutrality, though. We could say, if we're people of goodwill, and, and the example I like to use here is imagine a, a very kind and thoughtful Catholic priest and a very kind and thoughtful. Uh, Planned Parenthood activist and they're going to write about the topic of abortion and they're never going to agree at the end of the day on, you know, and so, but the the priest is going to understand very quickly that, okay, that the entry isn't going to say abortion is a sin. It's going to say the Catholic church position on abortion is thus and such. And the Planned Parenthood activist can say, and critics have responded this. And, you know, suddenly we got, okay, now we've got a document that we can work on together. And that neutrality is is the only way that I know of, uh, outside of a few other fun examples. Um, I was surprised to find people can write humorous things together, um, but even there, it's it's sort of helpful to have a set of inside jokes and parameters that you go with. Um, it's sort of like for two people to collaborate on a poem, very difficult. For two people to collaborate on a fan fiction Star Trek episode, kind of a lot more straightforward because that's a formula, like we all know how Spock behaves and how Kirk behaves and the sorts of situations they get into. So with the encyclopedia, that that collaborative element meant that neutrality worked really, really well. And there's a lot of, not just uh, sort of ideology in the community around that, although there is, right? There is a a lot of conversation, a lot of talk, a lot of desire that we should try to be neutral, but also that just the dynamics of the site help drive towards that. Um, If you write something that's very one-sided. It just won't survive for very long. You know, someone will come in and, and make it more neutral or the, a big argument will break out and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's that's a part of it. Now, when we step back from that and we, and we look more broadly to try to think as well about what are the, I don't know, socioeconomic factors or cultural factors, if you look at... Um, uh, even television news, which which isn't plagued by exactly the same kind of clickbait problems that online news has been, because it's still got a, a more traditional business model with advertisers and so on and so forth. Still, uh, there appears to be quite a good market in having a uh, you know a progressive or a Catholic encyclopedia, except for for news. You know, there is a market for Fox News to be. Uh, more right leaning there is a market, and that shouldn 't be a terrible, terrible thing you know i don 't think all news needs to be completely perfectly neutral. I think you know it, ideally um, you know and this is a concept by the way that 's very american i don 't see it nearly as much in the u k papers ideally you 've got your front page, your news page, which is objective and neutral, and then you 've got your opinion columnists, and different papers may have a certain stance uh, in that. Here, the opinion is more infused in everything. And so if you see a, a story on the front page of the Daily Mail, it's very likely to be transparently and obviously sort of agenda-driven in a way that in the US, maybe it is sometimes, but in general, there's this sort of view that it probably shouldn't be too much so. But with, with television news, uh, you know, it's, we, we have that. But I'm not sure really, is that really the source of the problem? That that's where I get I get kind of puzzled. Um, I don't know. I'm going on and on and on. Yeah, let's step, <laughs> let, let's step
0: back. I, I'm very interested in first of all at the birth of Wikipedia. I mean, I from my own perspective, you made two really critical decisions. That but for these decisions, there wouldn't have been a Wikipedia. One of them was this perspective on neutrality. The second one was the commitment not to um, take ads, <clears throat> and those feed each other, because. I think what you see in the context of cable news, for example, you know, when Roger Ailes came along in Fox News and said to them, look, our future is to speak to our base. We should stop trying to speak to everybody and we should learn to just speak to the conservative base. That was a brilliant commercial insight about why non-neutrality would actually pay more. And it could have been with Wikipedia if you had chosen to have ads that there would have been some bean counter who said, you know, actually, articles like this get us more ads than articles like that. Um, mm. And so, therefore, yeah. we should be tilting our editorial judgment in this way versus that way. I mean, but you foreclosed that opportunity commercially and ideologically by committing to neutrality. Now, you know, was this just an insight or like did you trip <laughs> into it or what, what gave you this possible uh, insight at the birth of Wikipedia?
1: Uh, I mean, to me, it just seemed obvious that this is what you would want. Um, and I, I do think there was a, you know, there, there's, you know, people can be a bit overstating kind of like the the early dreams and ideals of the internet um, versus the later commercialization of the internet. I think that's too simplistic, but this definitely did come from that sort of earlier ideals kind of place of like, it's like free software, open source software. It's people getting together and doing some cool things because it's fun and interesting uh, rather than really thinking about what's the best business model. And that was just in some ways part of that early culture. You know, it was like uh, rough consensus and running code. You know, it's that kind of thing. And a lot of it really was around rough consensus and running code. It's like we we made these decisions historically, i.e. in a context and in reaction to events and so on, as well as in a principled way. Um, And I think we were very fortunate at various points in time. Um, You know, one of the things I I always say about the, you know, the, the real sort of how the community functions and the institutions of the community, including how admins are elected, including how the arbitration committee works, which the arbitration committee is like the Supreme Court of each language of Wikipedia. A lot of those things exist, and it's a completely radically different model from what I would call a... A uh, master and surf model which we have virtually everywhere else on the internet and part of the reason for that it's not that I had this amazing insight that there would be a way for the community to manage itself uh, it's that there was no choice because Wikipedia is really a child of the dot-com crash and I think you know if as Wikipedia started to really boom which was really during the, the, the depth of the dot-com crash if, if I had had the ability to go out and raise $10 million, uh, which would have been a perfectly normal and natural kind of step. What would have easily happened is, as you can imagine, okay, all right, we've got this website, we've got all these users, they're doing some great stuff we're building, but we're starting to see a few problems here and there. So we need to hire some moderators. We need to hire some community managers who will go in and, and police the content, which is exactly how it's done at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube everywhere. Um which we never did because we had no money to hire anybody. So we we were forced to say, well how do we figure out how do we do this in a way which means things like you can, you know, admins are elected by the community, you can lose your adminship. Um but we don't have re election so an admin is sort of an admin for life because they need to have the strength. They don't need to be pandering to a shrieking mob sometimes, but they do need to sort of follow the rules or they lose their adminship and so on and so forth. Like there's a million little decisions in that, which we would have never come to. Uh, we would have never really had any way of getting to those if we had had the money to just hire people to, to, to do content moderation. And as we know that that sort of top-down feudal model of content moderation is, it doesn't scale. Like, I mean, it scales in one sense. You can have a really big site, but it sucks. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that well. And we've seen that, you know, all, all the sorts of things like, uh, you know, why, why was Donald Trump able to get away with behavior that most people couldn't on the platform? And that's very obvious. Like, the man kept them in the front headlines of the news on every news website in the world. For years and years and years, Twitter became massive because Trump was on there breaking the rules every day. Uh, you know, like, I can understand it. Like, if I were on the board of Twitter, I would have been very hard-pressed to say, yeah, actually, we need to get rid of this guy because he's breaking the rules because, frankly, he's making the platform as well. So, I mean, you can understand it. You may not approve of it, uh, and I don't approve of it, but I can see how that happens. Whereas at Wikipedia, that's not in the hands of the Wikimedia Foundation at all. Like, the community would just, you know... It, well, it's, it's a different type of platform, of course, though. It's not a free speech platform. It's an encyclopedia. So there are some other details. But I think that the the non commercial aspect of things is is fairly important here, uh, and the the ads, although I think the the ads when I think about Fox News, I think one piece of the Fox News phenomenon that a lot of people miss, and i think well as i say i haven 't been living in the u s for ten years now, so i 'm talking about Fox News when I lived there more than ten years ago, and what people missed was that they had a lot, they still have a lot of opinion shows um, with a host who's, who's got a view and is, is promoting it and it's an editorialized talk show. And then they've got the little snippets of news in between. Those tended, back then especially, they tended to be quite professionally well done. They were as good as anything on CNN, except for one thing. They were about issues and stories that were of interest to people in Alabama, where I grew up. And Tennessee, whereas CNN tended to have stories and issues that were of interest to people who are urban elites, Uh, and that's that is a market segmentation where it is yes, in a sense, playing to the base, but it's playing to the base in a way that's not ideologically offensive. It's just like you know what? Actually, people in Alabama care a lot more about crops. I don't know crops. I just made that up. I actually don't know what what a good example might be, Uh, whereas. You know, in New York, they care a lot more about drug problems in the inner cities, which just isn't a thing, you know. Uh, And so that aspect of things is sometimes overlooked, that actually Fox was delivering not just an ideologically conformative product for more conservative-leaning people, but actually a better product in many ways. And that's an interesting piece of the whole puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I
0: think it's right to think about what they're delivering as something different from ideology, but it's consistent with seeing it as identity. They were de- delivering a certain kind of identity. and the genius yeah. of of uh, Roger Ailes was to recognize that in a highly competitive market, having a clear yeah. brand identity was going to make you much more successful with advertisers than if you if you weren't. Um, but I agree with you it's it's different when you jump to the internet, and this is where it's really interesting to think about the counterfactual with Wikipedia. I mean, you know, when when we were at the seeing the birth of the internet, nobody was conceiving of an infrastructure that would monitor or surveil, as uh, Shoshana Zuboff so nicely puts it, oh. surveil its capitalism, surveil everything you do, and build these extraordinary AI-driven models to figure out who you are based on you know the seven clicks you've done. Um, and they weren't imagining building a infrastructure of commerce on top that would trade on all of that data. And even more than just standing back and watching what you do, what Facebook is so famous for is the idea that they actually tweak you or poke you or make you angry or just to produce more information that they can then use to commercialize the opportunity.
1: And I I think a piece of this that's you know increasingly clear to me uh, is that the algorithms themselves do that without direct human intervention. I can't really, I don't know as many people at Facebook, but I know people, very, very senior people at, for example, YouTube. And I can tell you YouTube, the people running it have no interest in radicalizing young men. It's not a thing they want to do. It has no business value to them. But whenever you've got a very powerful set of algorithms that are designed to optimize, let's say time on site or how many ads you view and possibly drive you towards slightly more remunerative advertising and so on and so forth, then the result in terms of ideas and quality and, and thoughtfulness are kind of what they are. And and if you're not really caring about that or you're not paying enough attention to it, even if you start to pay attention to it, it's a real struggle. And I actually this is one of the, the areas, I always say I'm a pathological optimist, but One of the areas that I'm somewhat pessimistic about is if it is true that algorithmic sort of driving people on free content that's advertising supported, if it's true that that tends to inflammatory content, low quality content, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think even if they're very, very well-meaning, which is in some cases probably optimistic to assume, even if you're very, very well-meaning, it becomes very, very difficult uh, for the same reasons that it's very, very difficult to say to Twitter, why don't you just kick Trump off? Um, because even if you say, look, we have no interest in in driving people to the most, you know, sort of train crash content, if it works, uh, you're going to have a hard time resisting doing that. And I, for me, this is where I think it's time to start thinking about different business models uh, to compete with that and to say, you know, there's all the classic sayings, which we've all known forever, which is, you know, if if you're not the customer, you're the product and that sort of thing. But it's become really, you know, quite acutely clear that a lot of this stuff is really very problematic um, in ways that, yeah, as you say, we didn't foresee.
0: Uh, yeah. And- I mean, just to give another example, to emphasize the AI point, but then to build on this point about like what just naturally follows, I think it's in the fall of 2017 um, it was revealed that Facebook had a category in their advertising platform called Jew hater. Now, there was no Facebook engineer who created the category Jew hater. It was their AI that figured out that there were a bunch of Jew haters, Jew, people who hated Jews, and they were a good market, and they could target to them. And so the machine started selling ads on the basis of Jew haters, and and you know. Facebook of course stopped, You know, no, you know, they were astonished that their technology <laughs> did this, but it's it's just what super smart AI will eventually do. So I think this is a really important point. But the second point is like, you're exactly right about expecting them to do the right thing. I think the great an- analogy here is actually to fast food. There's this great oh. book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, I think is the title. Um, um, and, and the basic story this book tells is, first of all, the story of food science which of course is a science to produce product which is extremely addictive to human bodies. Like because of the way we've evolved, the perfect mix of salt, sugar, and fat is almost irresistible. So they're trying to develop this to market their product. Not because they're trying to make us unhealthy, because they're trying to make a lot of money. But the great part of this book is that, uh, um, Michael Moss wrote the book, the great part of this book is, the story of these executives at these and that these companies, like Kraft Foods, who, like, see the light. Like, we're poisoning America. We've got to stop doing this. So they begin to produce healthy products. But then, of course, people don't want healthy products. Okay. So the market punishes them, and then they're kicked out of, of, you know, Kraft Foods. And it's the same dynamic here. I mean, if you, you know, begin to talk about how to have healthy political news, <clears throat> you know, you could imagine... Um, somebody at Facebook, Cheryl uh, Sandberg standing up and saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have safe political news. And then, you know, it would turn out they're not as compelling. And so therefore the stock market would punish them. And, yeah. you know, she'd be gone. Oh,
1: oh, yeah. So although uh, to be slightly more uh, optimistic about it, I always remind people that that Wikipedia is incredibly popular. Uh, at one point, I would I would say that it was more popular than the top 20 newspapers in the world combined. And I haven't checked that fact in a while, but I'm sure it's probably still true. And so what I think is that, you know, to be very, very simplistic, but I, because I'm not a brain scientist. So, uh, you know, but there's, there's, as a human being, we're all very aware of what we might call our Aristotelian brain and our monkey brain, reptilian brain, you know, and so we 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 really want and we actively value high quality, thoughtful information that we can read and learn from and become better human beings. Uh, and we, we really do value that. At the same time, um, we click on stuff that just, you know, caught our eye uh, and we share things on social media because we are either afraid they're true or we hope they're true um and we do all these kind of other behaviors very addictive behaviors um i uh i tried tiktok for example which um, uh, of, of all the things it sort of we talk about political influence and all of that tiktok is pretty benign it's mostly just goofy silly stuff um but it's incredibly addictive and what I found is very, very quickly TikTok figured out what I didn't like and what I did like. So when I go on TikTok, I get a lot of cooking videos. Uh, I also get grown-up women dancing, not little girls dancing, because that kind of creeps me out. They figured that out. Right? They're like, okay, they know nothing about me, zero. They haven't analyzed me demographically. I didn't, you know, I gave them no information. But just from my behavior... They figured out, okay, if, if we show him this, he'll keep watching. And if we show him that, he'll stop. And and it's it's incredibly powerful. So I deleted it from my phone because it's a little bit of a waste of time and scary. So I, I made a conscious sort of Aristotelian brain decision to say, I'm going to delete this. This isn't actually a good way for me to spend my time. Uh, and I'd rather not. Uh, but of course, we're all like that. Uh, you, you can find yourself. I actually find myself this way around... Um, political news. I think it's very, very good and important to be uh, politically well-informed and, and, and sort of in our social circle, that's considered to be a good thing. At the same time, I think we can also admit you know, there's just too much of it. You know, I, I, I made a conscious decision, which I mostly stuck to. I would never, ever click on a headline that seemed to promise to tell me what Donald Trump tweeted last night. Because I was like, there's, I'm sure it's terrible. I'm sure it's outrageous. And I'm sure there's nothing I can do about it. And it, there's no actionable information. But that's, you know, so because of that, that duality, I think there is an opportunity around designing new media, designing new spaces that aren't as addictive, maybe, yes, uh, may not be as profitable, true, uh, but could be quite successful at saying, okay, here's a place you can come, Uh, when you're feeling like you want to be smarter, you want to be more useful. I mean, an an example, uh, during lockdown, I, I, like you, we used to see each other fairly often, out traveling the world, giving speeches, and I've been at home here in my attic. uh, And I thought, you know what, I used to love computer programming and coding, and I've got a little extra time. So I went on Udemy, and I started doing programming classes again. Had an absolutely fantastic time, find it very spend hours and hours doing something, get into a flow, learning, growing, and I feel good about it at the end of the day. And I pay them money for it. Uh, And that's a successful business model. And I think that's that's where we should be exploring is to say, let's step back. You, You can't, I don't think you can have a sort of a Facebook competitor, Twitter competitor that is different from them as long as you start with the same business model as them it 's going to drive you to the same place so I, I, uh, a few years ago, I started Wiki Tribune, which in the initial um, sort of iteration was just saying okay let 's try to do more collaborative news um, and didn 't want to have so no ads, no paywall. Uh, I joke a series of bad business decisions, but that 's how i 've built my career so far and But the idea was, okay, let's just try and let's start digging in. Let's figure out what's broken with journalism. Let's try to do neutral, high quality. And what I found over time, there were a great many things that I learned during that experiment. Uh, One was, it's actually really, really hard for people to collaborate on news, uh, simply because it's not an encyclopedia. You actually need firsthand reporters doing journalism. Otherwise, it's quite hard to, to get anywhere. The second thing I learned is, you know, we're looking at the site, we've got a big response, a lot of people signed up, people were eager to support, and hired 10 journalists and we started putting out content and trying to work with the community to collaborate on the content and so on and so forth. And then I'm, I'm reviewing the site traffic and site statistics, and, and what I see is, oh, like, oh, this story really got a lot of traction. Hmm, what's up there? And I go and look at it, and I'm like, oh, it's kind of got a slightly aggressively clickbaity headline, not to my taste. But it worked. And you suddenly start to say, actually, I do know how to make this more popular. Um, I'll just build BuzzFeed again, right? And and by the way, I actually have a lot of respect for BuzzFeed because despite having grown uh, on the back of very sort of clickable, clickbaity content, they actually have done a lot of really good serious journalism. Don't know why. Probably they're just good people. So Because <laughs> I can't imagine that it's the profitable bit of the business. But, you know, and suddenly you realize, okay, like even even if you want to be successful in that area, you have to understand that actually you, it's a wider ecosystem. And as long as the wider ecosystem is really, really rewarding the monkey brain, uh, then it's hard for newspapers to avoid pandering to that. You know, if, if you write a Fluffy clickbaity article with a juicy headline, and you make just as much money as a serious investigative journalism report. It's very hard to make the the business decision. Let's do more serious investigative journalism because, frankly, it doesn't pay the bills. Um, and that's a part of the broader ecosystem problem.
0: Okay, but there, but you've got so you had an experience with Wiki Tribune. You you migrated to Wiki WT Social. Um, um, I want you to take that experience and then the picture of like how Wikipedia was conceived of at the beginning. Imagine you had, you know, one of the many billionaires who could write a $50 billion Mm -hmm. check (laughs) and, uh, and you were going to design the information ecosystem that would enable politics to be healthier, Um, Mm -hmm. not perfect or true or not capital T true, but like what, what would you do? Like what, how would Mm -hmm. we, constrain ourselves, I mean, you know, again, with the model of, like, fast food, we know what we should do individually. Like, we should stop eating, you know, buffalo wings and potato chips. We need to eat more avocado and the like. Like, we know how to individually conform our behavior to make ourselves healthy. What would we do to make society healthy? Like, how would we build it?
1: I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, It's a really, really hard problem. Uh, You know, so some of this is very... uh, deeply deeply cultural um and that uh, that idea of you know personal growth and enrichment and enlightenment uh as as a desired sort of way of living where you say actually i do prefer being mindful of what media i'm consuming um i mean i just as, as one example, I've, I've said for a long time now, if I, if I logged into Facebook one morning, I say that as if I go on there every morning. I haven't for many years now. But if I were to go on to uh, you know, a big social network and they said, actually, we've got a new option. If you tick this box, instead of showing you things we think you'll like, um, we're going to show you things we think you'll disagree with, but that we have some signals are of quality. I would love that. I would love to see that i would I would find that far more interesting than what comes across my transom otherwise, where you know like I, I use Google News as kind of my starting point to read the news, but I always do it logged out and I clear my cookies from time to time because I actually don't want it to be customized I don't want them to show more of what I'm interested in I want to show me things'm that you don't think I'm interested in at all that's probably more interesting to me and so I think. If we come to value that kind of thing, where we say, actually, what I want is not to have something that distracts me for the next hour, but something that for the next hour challenges me, um, then that's a start. And I think that's about education. It's about education about education. Um, That doesn't give us any easy answer of what to do with the, the billionaire's pile of cash um, but I think it kind of points in a direction to say, well, there is, I think, a demand for that. There are people who would say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually not happy with being fed one side of the issues because social media is pandering to me. Uh, or, by the way, I'm, you know, I, it's so funny how naive we all were just a few years ago. I remember there was a debate about blogs and and the debate was, People are only reading blogs they agree with, therefore they're becoming more polarized. And I said, hmm, don't don't think that's true because most of the blogs that I read, what they really enjoy doing is linking to the blogs they disagree with and arguing with them. So actually by reading blogs, I'm actually getting a lot of debate, healthy, interesting debate. Well, now it's all moved on from there. It's like we don't actually choose to go and read blogs and we don't follow the links to what the blogger we like thinks I should, you know, like... If, I, I don't follow Larry Lessig's blog to see the other side of the issue that he's debating with. I just see what comes across my transom that an algorithm chose. And that's problematic, right? So now, we, if, you, if you ask me the same question, I'll say, actually, no, it's true. Actually, I get a lot of information that isn't someone I ad- agree with as a starting point, arguing with people who he and I or she and I would disagree with. It's actually just whatever random things the algorithm knows I'm going to click on.
0: So, but uh, I'm just wondering if we just think about one of these media enterprises. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've already said, I think rightfully, that it would be very hard to compete as Twitter if you didn't play into this game. Mm -hmm. But I wonder whether there's a more subtle way to think about what you could and couldn't play into this game for. So if I were, if, if I could control Facebook tomorrow... I would not ta- turn off the tracking for purposes of figuring out whether they should be advertising diapers to me. I mean, I was happy when they advertised diapers to me when I had children who needed diapers. And I'm happy they don't <laughs> yeah, advertise yeah, yeah. diapers to me now because I don't need diapers in my life. And I'm glad somebody knows that and it's taking care of that problem. But yeah. I, So I wouldn't turn it off in the commercial channel, but I would turn it off in the in the kind of, you know, Aristotelian politics channel, like the channel where we're yes, trying to help yes. people understand who uh, yeah. they should be thinking about. Uh-huh. Um, and I just yeah. wonder if you, I mean, you, you obviously you've not run Facebook, although mm-hmm. you have a good sense of data and from WT Social and the like. I mean, what would it cost to be able to, to build that type of enterprise that you know could be in some sense cross-subsidizing mm-hmm. neutral discourse about politics yeah. with its deep yeah. understanding? Yeah, I of, mean,
1: so, you know, g- given... I mean, there's some really interesting experiments out there, um, which I think are worth taking a look at as a starting point. And, you know, alternate business models. I mean, one of the things that does cheer me up a bit is that we are seeing the rise of subscriptions, payment models. And I think that's really important and helps to balance that advertising revenue. And and, and the, the way of that balance is actually... Uh, you know, it's like changing the incentives of the news organization. Instead of what are people going to click on the most, it's what are people going to feel at the end of the day was worth their money. Um, By the way, and that might not be neutrality in every case. Um, You know, it it might be that I want to buy a high quality newspaper that I agree with, but that's always been so. Um, But, you know, in terms of, if you think about that, that algorithmic piece. Um, so one of the, there's an interesting guy I met, Canadian, met him at a, at a news, I think it was a Newsgeist uh, conference. I'm, Valley Valley Media, anyway, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, he's, um, he's, he runs several news sites um, across Canada. His ideal market is a small town where the local newspapers died, but where people still think of themselves as a community. So he had one that didn't work out because everybody actually didn't think of themselves as a community. They thought they were a suburb of Toronto. So they read the Toronto newspaper. And in another case, it was a town of the similar size, say 40,000, 60,000 people. They were far enough away that they thought of themselves as a community and their newspaper had died. So he saw an opportunity there. But some of the details of, of how he did it uh, were really interesting to me. So one of the things that he, he does is he, he does not share with any of his journalists the analytics for what they're writing. Because he said, if I did and if I rewarded them based on analytics, they basically would love to write more about car crashes and less about the city council meeting. Uh, and he said what he felt his, his strength or where he would be successful is if his newspaper could become his news website, could become the heart and soul of the community? It's that central place, and he was having—I mean, at the time he was having success of, you know, in a in a town of sixty thousand people, he would have forty thousand unique visitors every day. Basically, every adult, right? It was the local newspaper, which is really interesting to me because in many many places, the local newspaper's dead, doesn't exist, or it's it's you know, where my where I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, the local newspaper is. A shadow of his former self. It's actually published out of a city 100 miles away and it's largely the AP newsfeed and a couple of local stories, you know. Um, Anyway, he was an interesting guy because he was doing something that I would have said is a fool's errand, you know. Um, And people said, well, actually, one of the reasons he's so successful is he used to be a really fantastic local radio ad sales guy. So he knew how to get the advertisers and he would do all very old fashioned, you know like he would do a huge spread with the local car dealer. And he's like, in all of my, in all of my papers, we do like local events that we give out ice cream at the car dealership. Uh, and he's like, I can get, I've managed to get zero of the advertising budget from like, I don't know, Ford of Canada, but the local dealers I can always get because I'm part heart and soul of the community. So it's that kind of interesting stuff. It's hard yards, right? It's, it's very sort of on the ground work, uh, but also very interesting. Um, and it's the sort of thing that you could say to some billionaire, actually, there's a model worth looking at. Uh, and, and, and not to sort of go in like, what was the AOL patch, which tried to do local, but really it didn't work out in the end. It was an interesting concept, but really sort of very kind of platformy and, and so on. It didn't really have soul. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities around meeting an unmet demand for good quality local journalism. I mean, people care just as much as they ever did uh, about what's happening in their local communities. They just have no way of finding out.
0: Yeah, I think the the, the idea of not telling the journalist how their stories are performing is really critical. Um, I I got into a fight with the New York Times where we discovered at the end of this fight, which is what made them fold and made us settle the fight. Um you know they had a online headline and they had a offline headline. And the offline headline, the print headline was perfectly sensible and balanced and you know described the story. But the online headline was totally clickbait and it was defamatory on top of being clickbait. Yeah. And when you look at the actual inf- insides of what's going on in the New York Times the journalists are helping to craft the digital headline and they are being informed about the number of shares from their stories. Yeah, so they're being rewarded. The more they can make it into the sort of thing that, you know, will drive people to click it as opposed to the offline headline guy who he doesn't care if you read story four on page three or not. Right, right, I mean, it's, right, yeah. it's the same. Yeah. They've sold the newspaper yeah. already.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and what they care about is, are you going to buy the newspaper tomorrow? Yes which is much more of a deeper kind of quality question than did your monkey brain click on it because it sounded exciting.
0: I got to defend monkeys here. Monkeys are reptiles better. (laughs) Reptile is the right Okay.
1: Yes. Okay. Let's go to reptile. Yeah,
0: no, that's exactly right. So, so in the, in the experience you've had with WT social, what, what Mm. have you learned? Like what's the hardest part here?
1: So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of learned, and it's an ongoing pilot project. Um, So,
0: just to make sure everybody understands this has, this is no yeah. ads. This is, no,
1: yeah. So a new social network, no ads, no paywall. So the business model. So where I come from is this idea that if, if you have the same business model as everybody else, you're going to end up in the same place as everybody else, more or less. Uh, and so by going in with no ads and no paywall, then the only way we get revenue, and by the way, not nearly enough, let's be clear, <laughs> is if people say, you know what, at the end of the day, this is meaningful to me. This has made my life meaningfully better, and I would say one of the biggest challenges is what I would call a a, a chicken and egg problem, right? Which is that interesting people uh, want to invest time in producing content that other people will see, and so if you've got a small social network, people aren't really gonna want to take the time if they only get twenty followers, right? And so. You know, it's sort of, you know, while at the same time as saying, I don't want to pursue kind of the click clickbaity kind of approach, you also have to be interesting. You know, that's, that's also true, that it has to be fun, it has to be interesting. So it's been a challenge to get uh, sort of influence on the platform because there's not really a chance of, of getting big. And so what we end up with actually is quite interesting. It's a small community. Uh, people who are posting th- thoughtful things, we're still very much in, in development and figuring out how do we hand as much power into that community as possible. And some of that is just pure software issues, right? So if, uh, you know, not to bore everybody with the details of how wiki software works, but if you're gonna let somebody be an admin who has the power to delete things, it needs to be really transparent so that other users can go and, and say, oh, well, why was that deleted? And, and can I debate that and can I judge it? And that sort of thing. And so if we have you know, places on the site where if you delete something, it's actually gone and no one can see who did it and, and why, then that can only be a staff function because obviously you know, it, it's, it's just not feasible to share it out. So we're slowly working through those kinds of issues to give more power into the community uh, there's also a lot of really practical stuff, like the site's not as fast as it should be. So that's actually what we've been focused on lately. Um, so, and that's not that's not a big learning. <laughs> like no, no deep insight, but, you know, if you want to build a successful site, it better be fast. Um, but I think, you know, I think what we can say is that there is a community of people who are very interested in this idea of, uh, you know, slower, News, slower social media, where I'm not there because I'm addicted and and I I click. Actually, for myself personally, because I am addicted to Twitter, I use uh, software on my laptop that blocks me from Twitter uh, during certain hours of the day. It's called Limit. It's a Chrome extension. And so I have it, So because I need to use it professionally. I do have to tweet things. It's just part of what you do. Uh, But I only allow myself, during the workday, 10 minutes of Twitter. Um, so, it, but it actually makes my, my use of Twitter during the work week better uh, just because when I get on there, I'm, I'm like a little bit sweating. I'm like, I can't engage with trolls. I've got to just post my thing or read a couple of fun things and get out. But, you know, in that context, um, you know, that people are desirous of more deeper and, and complicated engagement, I've actually seen two, two things. Uh, well, I've, se- I've seen one thing and I'm, I'm working on another thing. So one there's a, a woman Anna Gat who has something called interintellect, and what she's done is create a community of people who meet for intellectual salons on on Zoom basically. So they organize there on Discord, they organize through Zoom, uh, and they have a website which probably is built on WordPress. So it's all sort of basic technologies or off the shelf stuff. Well, what's interesting is when oh, they're using Eventbrite to sell tickets. So, for example, I I did one. She's an old friend of mine. So I, I did one and uh, the tickets were, I think, $10 each and and 50 people came. And we did a Zoom chat with me and uh, an economist, Tyler Cohen. And that was great. And obviously, that's you, you look at that and you're like, well, that's not a trillion dollar market cap business coming down the way. But it's growing and it's successful and it's interesting and people are paying Uh, to come to these events. And now she's got, you can become a member. So I'll do a thing and then we're going to do a members only little thing. Uh, And what's interesting about it for me is that it's really about, it's about what we're doing here. It's about having long conversations. It's about chewing on ideas. And people do have a desire and they're willing to pay for that. And that isn't news exactly. Uh, But it's, to me, it's quite interesting as a a model. Uh, And then, the other thing that I've seen, and this is, leads to what I was working on, what I am working on now as a, as a part of WT Social, but it's kind of a side project. The So since lockdown came, uh, I we, we started with a group of friends here in London, but then it, it kind of spread to my family. We do a weekly pub quiz uh, on Zoom. And so basically what it is, a different family member or friend in the other group Uh, creates a quiz and is the quiz master. And then we meet and we joke around and you tease each other and you do quiz questions and so on and so forth. And it's a load of fun. Um, And in fact, in the London group, we really got a little over the top with dressing up and sort of everybody was quite bored, first lockdown especially, right? You don't know what to do with yourself. So what's interesting about it to me, and this is what I really sort of focus on about that experience is, my family, uh, we're, we're quite a close family in general, but I have to say, you know, with my brothers and sisters, one sister in particular, we weren't really talking all that much. Not because we had any major serious falling out, but just we have different lives and so on. And, you know, we've got our family WhatsApp group where we chat a bit here and there. But suddenly, every week we meet. Uh, and suddenly we're joking around and we're telling stories from when we were kids and, and so on. And then I, I, I reflect on that that experience every week of, of hearing from people. And sometimes we see everybody's, you know, we've got our own kids or dogs or whatever. And then my sister's boyfriend and uh, my, my other sister's mother-in-law comes, you know, it's like that sort of thing It's quite interesting. People who I, you know, they're family, but I didn't ever see them or rarely saw them. And I realized, you know, if, we, if you contrast that and you think, now I'm gonna ask you a question, would you call this social media? That I click like on my sister's picture of her dog, you know, on Instagram? And it's like a lot of what we call social media is not particularly social. You know, I see my I see my sister's cute dog picture and I click like and maybe I type, oh very cute. That's it. You know, that's not social. That's just the, the lightest possible thinnest like shadow of what human interaction is about. Whereas video and actually speaking to each other. Um, seeing other people um, laughing, you know, we're, my, my four uh, siblings, we're all going to have a, our own Zoom chat to talk about mom and dad and health issues and things like that. I hope mom's not watching, <laughs> but you know, it's like normal, normal stuff that you would do uh, that we're now doing over technology because it's just, it works. And that's kind of interesting and amazing. So the second thing I'm working on is I'm, I'm doing something called quiz night beyond, which is actually a quiz, Website, but where you do it socially. So on zoom, you just read out the questions This has got the questions in the middle and so on. So it's that kind of thing that I'm I'm interested in exploring You know sort of like if you want to fix a Facebook um, I'm not convinced that a WT social which here's the way I would describe it right now It's a pretty straightforward social networking platform. That's a little bit feature poor so you can post, you can comment, you can like, you can share, you can friend, you can follow with all the standard features. But I'm not convinced that just replicating sort of that with a different business model is actually driving completely in the right direction. If you don't add some elements that are actually more deep, more thoughtful, more engaging. So one of the things I want to do, but I'm not actively working on it yet because I've got a small team, is to sort of say, okay, can we, you know, can we do some social spaces that are like a group on uh, Facebook. But instead of driving to have a million members and as many clicks as possible, we drive to have 100 members who are willing to pay a little bit of money each month to meet with their group. Um, that's an interesting person or an interesting thing. Like uh, my example, which is completely fictitious, but it just captivated me. On WT Social, there's a beekeeping subwiki. We call it a group, a sub And I think it's got about 100 members it's not active right like much i'm like wow 100 people signed up and thought oh yes i'm interested in beekeeping and so now i suddenly think well surely somewhere in the world there's a really interesting fun beekeeper who's an expert in beekeeping who would love not to try to make a million dollars right but who you know if people would pay 5 bucks each would host a weekly q and a uh get a little group going of 20 30 people who Love to come in and talk about their bees and, uh, you know, get advice from each other and from someone an expert. And then suddenly you've got, wow, something that's really different and really social. Uh, So that's getting pretty far away from questions about news and media and traditional social networking. But it's kind of where my mind has gone lately, is to say, a part of it is if we want to move beyond sort of addiction and clickbait, right? I think we have to really start to think about how do we leverage technology to get into more richer experiences uh, that aren't as amenable to um, that kind of manipulation.
0: Yeah, so the word you used, I think, is so valuable is slow down, (laughs) slow it down. I mean, you know, there's a great slow food movement, which Mm -hmm. is responsive to the fast food addictions. There's a slow democracy movement, that says, let's just slow down where we do democracy, because if we can do democracy in places like this, or you know, podca- podcasts in general, or narrative form, or conversations with friends, we're, we as humans are pretty good at it. Like we can hear all sides and we can begin to make a judgment. It's only in yeah. the Twitter space, you know, where we can be tweaked that um, we, we don't do it very well. Um, so I, I th- so I love the idea of like deep deepening it, slow it down. And it's sort of what pandemic taught us, right? Like all of a sudden we had all this time and we could think in a different way because we did have that time. We weren't jumping to an airplane. That maybe this is this is hopeful. One last business model question, just to close the loop on the business model. So imagine, you know, one of the <clears throat> almost trillionaires said, okay, here's the thing. I will give everybody who's a member of a non-ad supported I want to say public media, in the, and by that I just mean that it's, you know, it's just trying to think about public issues, network. Um, everybody in those, I'll give you a $100 voucher. And at the end of a quarter, you can just, you know, allocate your voucher however you want. You can give it to, you know, as you put it, people who are doing, you know, sites that are doing good. You know, you can, do, oh. you can just allocate it in a way that's, just, that's, that's feeding your, what you think you need in your, as you put it nicely, the Aristotelian side of your brain. I mean, what would the number have to be to begin to be competitive with, you know, the idea of what you have to live with with Facebook or the like?
1: So give $100 to who?
0: To members. So everybody on WT gets $100. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. And then they can allocate it to any, you know, to WT, or they could allocate it anywhere they want, but they're allocating it to Mm. news sources that are... He yeah. committed not to be ad-driven news sources. So it's yeah, like a yeah, compensation yeah. for non-ad driven Really interesting.
1: News yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting model because normally you would think they would just, the billionaire would choose 20, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, the Texas Tribune uh, is an example. It's a nonprofit news site that's that's done quite well. Um, don't th- I think they don't have ads. I'm not really clear. But, um, you anyway, know, but good quality work, you know. Um, rather than saying give it to the readers, basically. That's quite interesting, yeah. But you create uh, a market a for
0: non-ad-driven news production because you okay. know that the readers have resources. I mean, oh, we all have resources to some extent, but this would be many more dollars of resources that we, yeah. you know, it's a wasted yeah. coupon. We'll turn it over for this purpose. Like, I want to drive my supported non Yeah. But, but the question would be, could you, could you inspire the right kind of norm? Because it can't be just a popularity context, because that's back to the kind of reptile brain. Yeah. It's got to be more, is this really giving me what I, what I want to understand what's going on in politics or in my local yeah. You know, community? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the problems that that could help to address um, so let's go back to my hometown newspaper where I grew up. So Huntsville, Alabama, Huntsville Times. And I was chatting with my mom about the problem. And, you know, she's like, yeah, the paper is ridiculous anymore. There's almost nothing local in it. And it's the AP Newswire. And and also she said it's like, it's like in the old days, it was one of those advertising circulars, which is, you know, it's still a good technology for delivering the local grocery store ads and so on. But the journalism is gone. And it only comes up. I think, uh, three days a week, you know, sort of Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. So it used to be a daily newspaper. And I said, yeah, like what's really exciting to me is that now we're starting to see the rise of subscriptions and people paying. And she's like, I wouldn't pay for it. It's terrible. (laughs) And suddenly it's like, oh, right. And before you can get people to pay for it, you've actually got to invest ahead of time. right. And actually build a newspaper worth paying for. Uh, which is highly risky given that people stopped paying for newspapers for quite some time. And so a model like that gets kind of interesting is to say, no, actually, that there's a way to, if you can get the, the, the member, maybe the, the way to do it is some sort of a matching model, you know, to say, right, and, and say to my mother, Doris, uh, if you subscribe at $100 a year, then a billionaires gonna chip in another $100 to a local say, it doesn't have to be local, the way you put it, it could be a lot of different things. But I think that's that's kind of an interesting model, right? Uh to, to say, uh, you know, trust people to pay for things that is meaningful to them. Uh, and it suddenly then makes it a lot more viable for someone to say, okay, actually, uh, I, I'm the owner, or I'm a, I'm a startup. I'm going to, whether it's a for profit or non profit, startups or startups, I'm going to launch this thing. But right now, I don't see a, a viable business model. But actually, if somebody's going to double the reader's contribution, uh, maybe this could work. Uh, it could be quite interesting.
0: Jimmy, yeah. um, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time and it's really wonderful yeah. to see you it's been too long <laughs>
1: yes it's been too long but now we have video so we
0: have video i don't
1: I don't just have to click like on your dog so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks for giving us your time okay all right lovely, lovely. Great. great bye bye that's our conversation with Jimmy Wells founder of Wikipedia and of course, one of the leaders in the free software and free culture movement. The conversation we had focuses, in my view, the biggest problem we as a democracy face. And that problem is how do we produce a culture for public understanding that helps us understand things in a common way? Not necessarily agree, but at least see the same set of facts. And this problem, which, of course, has been with us for many years, and is a problem which is half of my latest book, They Don't Represent Us, is a problem which the January 6th events makes even more salient. And so in these conversations, another way, we're going to think more, more deeply, about another way to bring about understanding other than the way we have right now, given the way we have right now is not working well. So stay tuned to this podcast for those conversations. These podcasts are produced by EqualCitizens.us. You can find us on the web, EqualCitizens.us slash another way. There's a place there to share these podcasts, which you can find everywhere. We're not so great as to be exclusive to anyone, which is good. It's not quite as remunerative. But still, you can find us and share us and give us feedback and ideas. What should we be looking at? How should we be going deeper? Another dimension of these conversations that we're going to begin to explore Is a part that's implicit in the title of our organization, but that we haven't thought enough about what it means to be equal citizens. This issue has been triggered for me recently as I've thought more about a set of decisions by our Supreme Court in cases called the Insular Cases, which essentially said there are two classes of citizens. There are citizens in territories, and there are citizens in the United States. And when territories were understood to be regions that were going to become part of the United States, the difference between those citizens was not as significant. But when territories began to include places like Puerto Rico, for a brief time, Cuba, the Philippines, Guam, really the whole of the greater United States, which is the kind of colonial United States, which was born really in 1898 over a course of a couple weeks when we, you know, fight with Spain, became masters over these extraordinary regions and chose not to treat them as equal nations or as states, potential states, but as colonies. That a very different idea of citizen began to emerge, an idea which was not equal, but dominant. There were citizens who were entitled to all the rights of citizens, and of course, initially that was just white men, but eventually it was white men and women, and in proper United States, the United States that have states at least, um, it was African Americans as well. But outside of the proper United States, outside of those states, these other people were thought of politically as lesser. It's astonishing. The idea that that decision made in 1901, five years after Plessy versus Ferguson, the decision that upheld separate but equal in the context of public accommodations, it's astonishing that that decision, affirming the inequality of persons based on race and culture, explicitly in the opinion of Downs based on race and culture, continues to be at the center of American jurisprudence. So that's a long way to introduce what will be another thread in these conversations. If we really were committed to the idea of equal citizens, if we were really committed to the idea that every human, not to be speciists about it, but every human within the domain of America was entitled to equal status as a citizen, what would that mean? How would the world change then? Because that's nothing at all like what we have now. Okay, that's a promise for the future. This is Larry Lessig ending this episode with Jimmy Wells. Until the next time, thanks for listening.